You're listening to HowStreet.com Radio, available online at TalkDigitalNetwork.com. Welcome to HowStreet.com Radio, the online source for market opinions. Here is Jim Goddard. My guest is James Corbett, publisher of TheCorbettReport.com, and he's also an editorial writer for The International Forecaster. He's speaking to us from Japan, where he has worked and lived since 2004. Welcome back to the show, James. Thanks for having me back, Jim. And I bet you you're glad that your Calgary Stampeders are in the Grey Cup this year. Couldn't be happier, and I'm looking forward to them soundly trouncing Toronto. Yes, we all do in the West. And we almost had a situation where Saskatchewan would have represented the East, except they lost with seven seconds to go. Anyway, so that's the sporting news that I'm sure everybody was waiting for on the show. James, was there any disappointment that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did not sign the TPP when he was in Asia? Well, there was some consternation from the Asian nations that were looking at putting this together. Quite specifically, I think Japan was really spearheading that. And uh, we did talk about this the last time I was on the show, and I made the incorrect prognostication that TPP was basically dead in the water and that it was over. But uh, that turned out to be almost immediately proven wrong because uh, TPP is moving ahead in some form. Some form of TPP-11 was being hashed out there at the APEC conference there in Asia. But uh, uh, yes, it turns out that Trudeau had made some sort of motion towards being on board with this, but then at the last moment didn't send the representative to actually conclude the deal. So it's still up in the air in what form this is going to move ahead, but it certainly does seem that it is moving ahead without the U.S. in some form or other. Now, Trudeau wasn't very specific about his concerns he had about it, but a lot of people have expressed concern about one of the portions of the deal that would allow a trade tribunal made up of international trade lawyers deciding if a country's laws had hurt the chances of a company making a profit. That's right. In fact, yes, that that is a, um, a clause that has been inserted in a number of trade deals in recent years and decades, and in fact has been used in some cases. I wrote a an editorial about this for the International Forecaster a couple of years ago when the uh, the text of the then Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement was leaked, and I did go through some of the um, some of the clauses, including the one on the investor state dispute settlement mechanism, and how it turned out to be even worse than feared, and how this uh, dispute settlement mechanism is being used in a number of different uh, agreements to sue governments for things like when um, Germany decided to start going, uh, start getting rid of its nuclear power after the Fukushima disaster, uh, they were sued by uh, Vattenfall, a Swedish energy major, um, for $6 billion, um, them basically claiming losses from the, the lack of funds they would have received from building nuclear plants in the country. Things like that is are happening, and so this is a worrying um, clause. I really don't believe that it, that really played a, a significant factor in Trudeau's decision. In fact, it's being speculated on in the media uh, quite widely that Trudeau's decision was more uh, attempting to show that he can be a, a stern and tough uh, negotiator in the face of uh, NAFTA negotiations that are upcoming. So I think uh, I think that that's more of a play towards the U.S. and trying to show that he's got a tough hand rather than actually some sort of real qualm about the agreement itself. The U.S. redeclaring North Korea a terrorism-sponsoring state. Should Canada join that agreement? 
Uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure it's the extent that uh, a Canadian declaration would really um, have the, the teeth that the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department's sanctions, upcoming sanctions that are yet to be uh, named, but uh, there are sanctions that are coming through the U.S. Treasury. Um, I'm not sure that, that the Canadian sanctions would particularly have much of an effect on the North Korean officials that will be named in these sanctions. But at any rate, one would expect that Canada would go along with it if uh, the United States was interested in them uh, doing so, because there's really no there's no political downside from this for Canada. Um, and I don't think that North Korean-Canadian relations are um, really pivotal to the, the situation. Yeah, if there isn't hockey involved, I don't see Canada be involved. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, does this uh, toughening up with North Korea increase the risk? I've just read a report that South Korea claims that North Korea could have an ICBM capable of carrying a nuke to North America by the end of the year. We really don't know, and there have every prognosticator has been proven spectacularly wrong in recent years. In fact, it was just recently that the intelligence agencies were saying that they were uh, North Korea was five years away from developing any sort of ICBM, and uh, they it turns out they were only five months away, and they've already tested their ICBM. So, um, so it is up in the air. I still uh, am quite skeptical that they don't have a re-entry vehicle for these uh, ICBMs, meaning that any that they're not effectively able to to deliver a warhead of any sort to any target, let alone a nuclear one. And still, the nuclear miniaturization process, there's no proof that they've reached that level that they can actually uh, put it in a warhead. So I think there are still technical limitations to what they're doing. But are they that close? Are they one year away, five years away, 10 years away? At any rate, they are moving towards that target. So I think certainly actions like this do um, at least escalate the tension. And it's a question of whether this is some sort of part of a longer gambit towards some some sort of negotiation process or strategy, or whether this is simply just increasing the tension. We'll have more with James Corbett right after the break. Welcome back. We're speaking with James Corbett. James, is China continuing its attempt to crack down on rogue credit? It is indeed. In fact, a pretty interesting development over the course of the past week where the um, People's Bank of China released a, a press statement with uh, a joint statement with financial regulators in Beijing uh, last Friday. And this statement is uh, is an attempt essentially to cr crack down on the shadow banking industry in China, which accounts for $15 trillion, that's US dollars worth, of so-called asset management products, which are uh, issued by banks and, and various institutions that are um, essentially guaranteed returns. They will guarantee, uh, I think the average rate of guarantee is something like 4.5%, as opposed to the 1.5% in one-year deposits. So uh, Chinese investors have flocked to them. And as I say, over the past 13 years or so, it's gone from basically nothing to $15 trillion worth of these asset management products floating around in the economy. And the reason for the popularity of these products is that although they do offer these often eye-popping returns, sometimes as much as 10 or even more percent, uh, and these are supposedly guaranteed returns, you just put your money in and a year later you're going to get 10 percent, uh, the vast majority of them have been successful, in fact. And, and the latest report um, from the Chinese government itself indicates of something like 180,000 plus of these different types of asset management products, only 88 of them have failed in the past year. So uh, they have been remarkably successful. 
And coupled with the fact that the Chinese investors know and have always known that if any of these failed spectacularly, the uh, Chinese government would step in to make them whole. Uh, They would not let such a thing uh, go under because, of course, it could risk a domino uh, throughout the $15 trillion asset management product industry. Well, now the regulators, as of last Friday, are coming out and uh, basically proposing sweeping rule changes that would effectively take out any indication of any backstop from the government. If they're going to fail, they're going to fail. So there's a bunch of new rules that are coming in uh, to effect, But the reporting shows, uh, at least at this point, investors don't really believe the government on this point, and they still tend to believe that if there is a a massive bankruptcy of one of these products, they're still going to be made whole. They still believe that there's that backstop there. So it's a question of whether China has the... the, uh, the uh, whether people trust the Chinese regulators when they say they're not going to, to support them. And at this point, it seems that they don't trust them. Have you heard one of the ways around the Greater Vancouver foreign real estate buyers tax is that there's no rule about who you can borrow money from. So consortiums are being made in China to lend money to people buying houses in Vancouver. That buyer defaults on the mortgage and then the consortium takes it over and doesn't have to pay that tax. It's interesting. I haven't heard that specifically, but that certainly wouldn't surprise me if that's going on. There have been a number of very interesting and innovative ways uh, for people to get around the various Chinese capital controls. And uh, that certainly sounds like one that could be quite effective in getting their foot in that lucrative uh, uh, West Coast property market. We'll have more with James Corbett right after this. Welcome back. We're speaking with James Corbett. James, uh, one of the stories I just saw about the power grab going on in Saudi Arabia is uh, many of the rich people being held have been told if you hand over 70% of your wealth, you'll be released. Have you heard any stories like that? I have heard stories to that effect. I've also heard stories of uh, uh, torture being used against some of these princes that have been rounded up. Unfortunately, of course, there's no real hard confirmation of this reporting at this point, because, of course, all the information coming out of there is being heavily controlled and managed. But this is being reported by a number of outlets, including CNBC and others, that it's basically a deal. Give us 70 percent of your wealth and we will set you free. And uh, that could be quite lucrative, really, for the Saudi government, i.e. the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who is behind this roundup and purge or whatever you want to call it, as it has been reported that over 1,700 bank accounts have already been seized, um, uh, comprising something on the order of $800 billion. So 70% of that would pretty much fund the $500 billion megacity in the desert that uh, Mohammed bin Salman just announced a few weeks ago, just before this roundup started, um, where they're going to construct a, an entire megacity out of nothing in the middle of the desert in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in the next decade or so, uh, called Neom. And it's apparently going to cost $500 billion to do this construction. Well, <laughs> there you go. I guess if they can extract 70% of these seized holdings, that's uh, that's pretty much paying for it right there. Is there anything new in China, India, and uh, Russia teaming up economically? Well, I I don't know the latest in terms of their economic team-ups, but I do see, um, just glancing through the headlines right before we talked, I did see an interesting development um, in some of the headlines that seemed to portend something, if not economically, perhaps militarily. And one of those uh, headlines was that Russia is rolling out its first upgraded 
super sonic strategic bomber. They've got the uh, TU-160M2, which they are slated to roll out in February of 2018. And combine that with the headline that is also um, in the in the news right now, uh, China flies four heavy long-range bombers and spy planes near Japan, talking about some uh, Xi'an H6K long-range bombers and Shanxi Y8 electronic countermeasures aircraft, as well as two Tupolev TU-154MDs that have been spotted uh, in uh, Japanese airspace, or at least very near Japanese airspace, in the recent weeks. So, again, I think that does um, give a flavor of the way that this is uh, being looked at. And I think China-Russia economic cooperation has to be seen also within the larger lens lens of that uh, military cooperation that goes alongside it. And we see that reflected in organizations like um, the, uh, the, uh, the name is going to escape me as I'm talking, <laughs> the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, which um, just last year admitted two new members into its uh, midst, uh, namely uh, India and Pakistan, which is an interesting political mix, but they both became members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization last year, which is a seen sometimes as a type of NATO counterbalance. That might be a bit overblown, but at any rate, it does involve joint military drills and does involve economic cooperation as well. So I think we do see this this all coming together. Um, but the the interesting kink in that formulation is that India is now being touted by the U.S. State Department as a key towards the Asia-Pacific region. They're now calling, taking to calling it the Indo-Asian uh, region, which uh, is, I think, a sign that perhaps India is being at least looked at by the U.S. State Department as a potential uh, partner for, if not a roadblock, at least some sort of counterbalance against growing Chinese influence in the region. So it is a question whether India can be wooed away from uh, the Beijing orbit and more into the U.S. fold. And I think that is a possibility because of China-Pakistan cooperation, including in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is part of this One Belt, One Road trillion-dollar investment scheme that the Beijing has cooked up. There's $60 billion of investment going on specifically between China and Pakistan in the coming years, including in some space uh, some of the territory that is uh, contested between India and Pakistan. That has caused a bit of friction between uh, Beijing and New Delhi. So it is a question whether India will fall more into the U.S. orbit and then be peeled away economically, militarily, and perhaps otherwise from Beijing. Going back to the influence of China, India, and Russia, are they going to get involved more in Saudi Arabia and perhaps influence the price of oil? Well, I think China-Saudi relations are already, I think, quite demonstrably um, changing and I think developing. And we can see that we can chart that even in the official state visits. We had an official state visit uh, from uh, from President Xi to uh, King Salman in Riyadh, I believe last year. And uh, that involved President Xi, for example, overseeing the opening of an oil refinery in Saudi Arabia that would be a Chinese-owned and controlled oil refinery. So that's an interesting development. And then I believe it was earlier this year, King Salman did a state visit to Beijing to visit President Xi. And on the uh, while he was there, signed something on the order of $65 billion worth of economic cooperation. So we already see China-Saudi cooperation um, uh, demonstrably uh, developing. And that, I think, is an extremely interesting development for overall 
course of future geopolitical events, let alone economic events, and even the monetary order itself. Um, obviously, the petrodollar being the U.S.-Saudi alliance, and uh, if that U.S.-Saudi alliance is shifted over to a Saudi-Chinese alliance, especially in the wake of the creation of the Shanghai Energy Exchange and the Shanghai Gold Exchange and the possibility of gold for oil uh, exchanges going on between, say, China and Saudi Arabia, it, it could be a fundamental shift in the world that we have known uh, in the post-World War II era. So it's an extremely interesting relationship to watch. I think Russia is part of that. We certainly do see some, some interesting diplomatic maneuvers between uh, Moscow and Riyadh. Um, but it remains to be seen what this Saudi purge, what will ultimately uh, emerge from the other side of this. It looks like Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has completely consolidated control over the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And if that is the case, then perhaps he can unilaterally, unilaterally dictate the, the basically the foreign policy for Saudi Arabia and either completely cement in relations, for example, with China and Russia, or perhaps continue playing this game with uh, U the United States uh, in a sort of will-they-won't-they-pulling-pushing um, game that's been played over the last few years of diplomatic and economic dance that's going on right now between Washington and Riyadh. It's extremely fascinating and I think is going in a large way as kind of a larger window into the future course of 21st century events, especially if we look at it as a type of proxy between potential conflict between China and the U.S. Do polls indicate that India would prefer to be a military dictatorship than a democracy? I haven't seen anything to that effect. Uh, I'm not sure uh, whether or not that would surprise me, to be honest. Um, Indian democracy is kind of an interesting uh, concept in and of itself, and the way that it has functioned um, is always been a bit interesting. So I, I, I haven't seen any poll to that effect. If you're telling me that exists, that would be interesting, and I'd like to look into it. Um, but I do know that, in fact, in the last few years, uh, I think generally, globally speaking, there has been a shift, a marked shift, and, a, and a one that has been noted in polls, towards uh, favorability of military rule over dem democratic rule, including even in places like the United States and Canada, where it is certainly, of course, still not a uh, majority opinion, but there is more of a softening of opinion of the idea of a military taking over, which I find a really strange and interesting development that uh, I think says a lot about the current state of the, the political situation globally, if not in India specifically. Well, I think Donald Trump went to a military school. Look how he turned out. Well, they say that there's a junta essentially running Washington at this point uh, with all the generals there in the in the cabinet. So there may be something to that. Have you seen anything about China plans to boost tourism by upgrading something like 64,000 toilets? Because the biggest complaint people have about visiting China is the public toilets. Well, that would certainly make sense from a Chinese public relations point of view, because yes, there are uh, definitely, for people who have not visited China, it uh, is quite eye-opening to see some of the things like that. So I have heard of this toilet revolution, as it is being dubbed, um, to boost tourism in China, but I'll uh, one-up you on that. Japan 
recently announced the idea, well, we're, we're seeing a boom in tourism to Japan. In fact, record numbers of tourists are coming to Japan each year now. So what we're going to do is we're going to institute a departure tax. That's right. So for the privilege of departing from Japan, you're going to pay a few dollars uh, in taxes, extra taxes, which they will then use to help promote Japanese tourism. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to actually work in their favor. But at any rate, that's an idea that's being floated in Japan right now. You have to pay to get out. <laughs> Hotel California or Hotel Tokyo? I don't know. Yeah. Well, if the Eagles are still around to sing a song about it. <laughs> James, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. My guest has been James Corbett, publisher of thecorbettreport.com. He was speaking to us from Japan. If you have any questions for James or any of our other guests, you can send them to info at howstreet.com. I'm Jim Goddard. Thanks for listening.